Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Mizen. Mizen knives, right? Cookware, kitchen stuff. I, anyone will tell you you got to have a good chef's knife if you're going to cause things to happen in the kitchen. And I don't know about you, but lockdown, quarantine, the pandemic turned me into a kitchen geek, and I am stoked about these knives. A great knife. It's got to feel good in your hands. It's got to stay sharp. It's got to hold up over time, regardless of what you're using it on, right? Um, but, you know, that's harder than it sounds. And Mizen went through 37 different prototypes until they figured out what makes the perfect knife. And the final result is, drum roll please, a knife that's a pleasure to hold, that's really sharp and can plow through tough stuff, and has a blade that stays sharper longer. And Mizen was smart enough to say, we could partner with factories, we could sell directly online, and we could keep this affordable. So, you can see for yourself, go to the link in our show notes and get your Mizen knife today. It's the perfect knife at an unreal price. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We've got the rumor, the innuendo. We figure out if it's real, if it's true about your favorite songs and your favorite bands. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. So excited for yet another tale of... Who knows what this evening? Well, okay. So recently on the show, we talked about a beautiful friendship, much like ours. I think I think yes. we have a beautiful friendship, and yeah, uh, the yeah. audience responded. The true partnership, or what we might now call like a bromance, uh, maybe some sort of even actual romance. Who knows between Iggy Pop and David Bowie? That was way yeah. more uplifting, it turns out, than talking about serial killers and knife fights, which are other recent episodes. Uh, so I thought to celebrate that, how about another story about a friendship, an incredibly unlikely friendship a friendship that brought a rock legend who had essentially disappeared from pop culture back to the stage after two decades oh now Ooh, this set that sounds fun i realize this is an auditory medium but i want to start with a visual i want to, i want to describe a particular photo um if someone was to f- force me to name my favorite photo and they said you cannot it cannot be of a family member or a friend it just has to be a a random photo of something else Um, i think this would be my favorite photo um i assume at some point in our friendship you have enjoyed this photo with me because i can't imagine that we know each other as well as we do it i've not shown you this photo maybe you showed me this photo i don't know but it is a photo of steve perry the lead singer of journey (laughs) in what appears to be the mid-80s grilling (laughs) do you know what photo i'm talking about no, I actually don't know. It's, I've never seen this photo. It's not a super famous photo. It's kind of hard to find. You have to like kind of go to Google and put like Steve Perry grilling, and you'll get a couple of hits, but not that many. You'll mostly just get pictures of meat. And I, <laughs> the, the link is in the show notes. But if you can't stop and look at this right now, like if you're driving or running or something, don't, don't do this. But bookmark it. Go back and look at it later. Let me just try to do it as much justice as I can in description. And... Here's all I can really say to describe it. It is simply Steve Perry grilling, holding a, a piece of meat out and looking very, very happy. But you know how amazingly in control and ecstatically happy Steve Perry sounds in this musical moment? Those crazy nights I do remember. It's like the visual version of this. Right? Like this song, every time I hear this song, it doesn't matter how I feel or what's happening in my life. I cannot not be happy. Like, this is one of the greatest rock and roll vocal performances on record, in my opinion. Love, 
And so if you could boil that down to a photo, that is this photo of Steve Perry cooking meat. It I, It's absolutely beautiful. It's just... And I, I know it's weird that this is where I'm starting, but let me explain to you why this is where I'm starting. So... Uh, what's your I, I? Steve Perry's just a big rock and roll question mark, right? His story sure. has always been fascinating to me, and I remember this photo last week, and I went looking to see if I could figure out anything else about this photo because I'm I'm like, there's got to be some sort of backstory on where this photo came from, and honestly, I didn't find much, but what I did find was more of the story. Of Steve, his outside success, his disappearance from music and pop culture, and then his eventual return. And most interestingly of all of this is there is this friendship at the core of this that after a couple of decades, he climbs back on stage because of this other person and this other group of musicians that encourage him. Now, you and I worked in classic rock radio together and we were there for that unlikely journey resurgence that happened. Uh, I, oh, you, the, you were, the Sopranos? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that, right? Uh, did you know in 2009, a journey song became the top-selling track in iTunes history? Among songs I, not I, released in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I remember when they had, they had a big iTunes hit. And I, I do recall when, when that happened. So and and it wasn't too close around the time where there was a YouTube video that went around and it a lot of people watched it but not everybody watched it. It's not like now it was so long ago, but it was that it was the San Francisco Giants baseball game and they were playing Don't Stop Believing yeah. and someone zooms in and there yeah. he is. Yeah, I remember watching that. I think I watched that at work with you back in the day. Like yeah. I remember that being amazing. So there is, and I actually did not put that in the notes. There is this great video that surfaced where like nobody had seen Steve Perry in a long time, and he shows up at this ball game, uh, and he's singing in the stands, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but okay, I want to I want to start by going back to the beginning and giving us a primer on this band. But I, I do want to ask you, what's your favorite Journey song? Um, for a for a long, it, it's between two, but it, it's uh, uh, separate ways. Oh, okay. 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 Easy. It yeah. always was. And that video, when I was a kid, like there, it was so dramatic. Like when they were doing their thing, they're like they the fit, the clenched fist. You know, if he ever hurt you, it's like they could have made a conceptual video, but instead it's them like sitting around in a drummer without a drumsticks, like pretending to play, like pantomiming drums. Yeah. Um, yeah. Their videos really are pretty great. Yeah, and that was low rent as hell. Yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, I know. I know something that you do not have, never had, and it's generational and ridiculous. I had the Journey Escape Atari Twenty Six Hundred game. Oh my God! Tell me about that. No, I did not have that. Yeah. So you you put it in. You, know, you blow in it. Whatever. So it works. <laughs> you put in the cartridge. Turn it on, and it goes. So it's it would play this really wonky version of "Don't Stop Believing," and that's it. And you would you were trying you were you were playing. You're just like trying to dodge stuff. It's like Frogger, <laughs> but like without asteroids? lily pads. 
it's just it well it's things are coming at you yeah. from the top of the screen and you're trying to avoid stages i think there was like something supposed to be like groupies or fans um and then there's like a manager or there's something that has like it makes your score go to like nine 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 and that would always happen and eventually i would just run into that person and the music changed and like the game was over <laughs> so it was so it was What's, basically it, it sucked because you could beat it really so, easily so was the manager a good thing or a bad thing I, I wouldn't it be funny if the manager came in and said listen the game's over when they meet he, they meet me <laughs> well, um, they, that sort of is like like the manager is a big part of the journey story that's why I asked that Herbie Herbert I don't know uh, yeah. I mean, it all starts with him. 1973, San Francisco. He wants to form a backup band that he can use for area artists. So he hires these guys and he calls them the Golden Gate Rhythm Section. And it has it's dudes that had all been playing in the studio with famous people like Neil Sean. He'd been playing with Santana and uh, Greg Raleigh and uh, Ross Valerie's playing bass and George Tickner's playing rhythm guitar. And they were a couple of those guys were in this band, Frumius Bandersnatch, which, by the way, amazing name for a band. Oh my God! What's the name of that band? What is it? Uh, Frumius Bandersnatch. That's that's that some early '70s San Fran goodness. Uh, Prairie Prince of the Tubes was playing as a drummer in this band. Um, and, and then they go to Hawaii to play to back somebody up, and and they all of a sudden decide like, hey, we're actually pretty good. We don't just want to be a backup group. And they're like, you know what we should be? You know what is going to make us really successful in the early '70s is we're going to be jazz fusion. <laughs> yeah. They didn't get to rock. So, and, no, no, it takes Steve them a while. And pop for a while. It, yeah. it, a really long time. Like, the, the, the Journey records you think of when I say Journey yeah. are like their eighth, ninth, and tenth records. Like, like they yeah. had a ton of stuff before that. So, and there was another singer, you know. Oh, yeah. oh yes. So, here's this is hilarious to me, though. So, they come back to San Francisco and they're like, what are we going to call ourselves? if we're not going to be the Golden Gate Rhythm Section or whatever, if we're going to be like our own standalone band. So they go to the radio station, like a local radio station, they're like, can you run a contest to uh, so people will name us? And then oh they, they do it, and it doesn't work, and they don't get any names they like. <laughs> so so a roadie suggests Journey. Uh, yeah, you should just call yourself Journey, and it sticks. Uh, so <laughs> to summarize the first chapter of this band, let's just say... Jazz fusion doesn't sell now or then, um, at least not the way that Columbia Records wants it to. So after three albums, three albums as a yeah. jazz fusion band, the label basically pulls them and says, "Like you need to sound like Boston. <laughs> what, what, what do we need to do to get you to sound like Forder? Like well, you can't sound like this anymore if you want to continue to make money." And so they hire this guy Robert Fleischman to be their singer. Oh yeah, and he doesn't get along. They Herbie Herbert who I'd already mentioned, the manager. He doesn't get along with Herbie, Herbie Herbert. And eventually, they have to uh, fire him. And then they find this guy, Steve Perry. Do you know how I knew who Robert Fleischman was? Uh, no, tell me. <laughs> it's the only... Like, I didn't know there was a guy before Steve Perry. And then I got this record in, like, 86 or 87, this LP you know, his, his face was on the back of it because he was the singer in the band. <laughs> and Robert Fleischman, he was the original singer in the Vinnie Vincent invasion. After oh Vinnie Vincent God. got fired from Kiss. Of and course. They, and they really hated him. <laughs> and 
I mean, and and then they 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 hired Mark Slaughter, and they all hated Vinnie Vincent, and then they started Slaughter, and so, and then if you oh listen to that gosh. first Vinnie Vincent record, it is those vocals are, it's like listening to like Venom's vocals, like it's just awful. <laughs> You know. so, so I'm glad that he got fired because so it they, changed everything. They find this singer, Steve Perry, and they start to change their sound. And the other thing that they, that I guess the record label turns them on to is it's like, if this is going to work. We have to get a producer who's going to make you sound like big. And so they get Roy Thomas Baker. And he, I, I don't know if you know that name off the top of your head, but he basically sure. just done all the production and layering for a little band called Queen. So yeah, you can only imagine. Yeah, he did a, a night a night at the opera, right? He yeah. spent all that cash and on that on the coke and the uh, on all that time. <laughs> so there's member changes, there's a few records, but by 1981, these guys hit the big time. Uh, they launch a tour that they headline. They get a shot to open for the Rolling Stones on a one-off. They create a fan club called Journey Force, which, by the way, is freaking awesome name, and. They get to write the theme song for Tron. Do you remember this? It's called, it, this is the best part, it's called 1990s Theme. <laughs> In 1981, this is what Journey thought the 90s were going to sound like. You know what it sounds like? The 80s. Awful. <laughs> yeah, it sounds awful. It, it, and it's an instrumental track. It's it's a two minute instrumental track. It's a, a, a kind of hard to find. It's not on this Spotify. Is ruining, this is ruining the memories of Tron for me. <laughs> Terrible song. <laughs> Terrible stupid instrumental. Were you a Tron guy? Were you? Did you get really excited about that movie? Um, it, it, it's very it's a it's a it's a movie that I became familiar with because the video game was in the arcade before I. Before I oh, saw the right movie, on, and then, right I, on, th yeah. then I saw the movie, yeah. Right on. And then I remember, and then when I, and then when I pieced it together, I was like, man, they took like two percent of the movie and made it to a video game. Hmm. You know, it's yeah. just like it, it just you die really quick. You know? <laughs> it's the opposite of the Journey video game. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So just to try to capture how big these guys had gotten, their eighth studio album, Frontiers, it mm -hmm. releases a month before I'm born in 1983. It is the band's second biggest selling album, sells over 6 million copies, peaks at number two on the Billboard charts, and it spawns Separate Ways, which you've already mentioned, mm -hmm. Faithfully, Center My Love, and After the Fall. Yeah. And they go out on tour with Brian Adams as their opening act. And Are arenas. Arenas. NFL Films actually records a documentary of their life on the road. And I, I think I've seen this because I think they might use some of it for Faithful. Like, I think it's the Faithfully video where Steve Perry's like on the phone. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they use that's you're, you're absolutely right. Ryan. They use like some of that B-roll. Like some of that is in the Faithfully video. And they did use some of the live footage for like any way you want it. And I think wheel in the sky that was used for like separate promo videos. They kind of cut out that they would show on MTV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, uh, there are scenes in this documentary that take place at JFK stadium in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and there are 80,000 fans in attendance. So just to just to paint the picture of how big these guys get in the early 80s. I mean, you and I, we've definitely lived in towns much, 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 much smaller than the attendance at JFK Stadium the day that they shot that. Uh, so now, height of their powers, they do solo albums and super groups. And I got to say, just 
side note, I did not know this until researching this. Neil Sean, like super group king of the world. Like I think yeah. all he wanted to do was hang out with his friends and get high and play music all the time, but he kept like all his friends. I think that was probably the only way you were friends with him because he's he I can't think of any other guy who's been in so many like quote unquote super groups. Like he just would turn and start a group with some other friend of his constantly. Um but eventually they come back together and Steve Perry is going to produce the new record. And he and that pesky manager, Herbie, fire like half the band. And this is the point where they hire Randy Jackson. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, dog, Randy that Randy Jack. Jackson. Uh, yeah. I, I, I remember that being a whole thing when he was a judge on American Idol. It was like, yeah, he was in Journey. It was like, well, kind of. It's like, he, it's like yeah, he's, not, he's no Steve Perry or Neil yeah. Sean. Yeah. So. Uh, so during this time, Steve's mom gets sick and ends up dying. And so Steve Perry's like trying to produce this album and he's trying to deal with this massive loss and life change all at the same time. And the long and short of it is like the album is just not very good. They, they tour, they sell a bazillion tickets still, but everyone in the band sort of gets pissed off and turns on each other and gets burnt out and they go on hiatus. And while Neil Sean and Jonathan Kane, while they're on hiatus, they form another super group. <laughs> Do you, you remember what supergroup they formed? Is it with just their last names? Uh-uh. No, it has it, it has a name, and it, it has an amazing song that I remember like riding my bike to in elementary school because it made me really happy. What was it? It's Bad English. Oh, that's right. So, oh, with John Waite. Sometimes I wonder how I'd ever make it through Through this world without having you a big hit. I just wouldn't have a clue. Dude, when the guitars hit right here, man. Mm. Cause sometimes it seems like this world's closing in on me. And there's no way of breaking free. And then I see you reach. Waving my arms in the air. Somebody pull a lighter out, please. Right here. Sometimes I wanna give up. Wanna give in. I wanna quit the fight. And then I see a baby. That's so cheesy. Oh, man. Oh, my. Sorry, we just had to do that because we're never going to. Oh, you know, I can't do anything. (laughs) I can't. I've totally forgot that that was their jam that they were in. Bad English. It's amazing. Uh, and, I mean, we're never going to have a bad English episode, probably, on this show. So I t- we needed to do that. I apologize yeah. for people who are annoyed and, by that. And you know what? That record that was after Frontiers was the last Journey record that I ever bought. That was raised on radio, right? Right, right. That's the one that Perry produces but doesn't do a very good job with. Um, yeah. So this is, like, where he starts to disappear, though. So those guys are off making uh, amazing power ballads. And... He doesn't fully vanish yet, but he's like just not up to much. He shows back up in 94 for a second solo album, and it doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, and from the time that they go on hiatus, it takes eight years. But by 95, Perry makes the decision to reunite with Journey, but he makes one condition. And this is where Herbie Herbert drops back in. He says, I will come back to the band, but we cannot be managed by Herbie Herbert anymore. So, do you know who they brought in to be their manager in this 90s phase? Uh, no. Ir- Irving Azoff. 
the manager oh. for the Eagles. Yeah, that makes sense. And so they record this album, Trial by Fire. And like, mm-hmm. I sort of remember my sister jamming this record when I was a kid and she was in high school. Like, I know we've talked about this before, but there was like this whole litany of things that I learned about, like Chicago and Celine Dion and like all these, like all this cheesy stuff that it just came out of her bedroom. And yeah. I had forgotten about this until looking at this, that she totally, we had this single. I know we did. And so I texted her and I was like, hey, do you remember that um, Journey song that you really liked? When You Love a Woman. And she's like, no, no, no. When You Love a Woman is Michael Bolton. And I was like, no, Amy. That's no. when a man loves a woman. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's- but when you, what, what you're thinking of is Brian Adams. Have you ever really loved a woman? I'm like, no. No, when no. You Love a Woman by Journey. And then I played it, and she was like, oh, yeah, I love this song. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you could tell even from the beginning of this song that, like, this was the problem with this record. Like, it was really self-indulgent, and it was, like, super, like, lots of piano and, like, didn't have a ton of that energy. It was a lot of ballad stuff. And by this point, it's like 96, man. So, you know, I mean, this was getting some top 40 radio airplay, but it was sitting next to Hootie and the Blowfish, right? It's not, yeah. it's eight years later. It's not the same thing anymore. And I yeah. also have to say, side note, the Trial by Fire album artwork is completely bonkers. Uh, it's got a woman, like part woman, part cat, part peacock. Mm-hmm. That's all what one. What the creature. hell is that? Oh my god! <laughs> and and she's holding a rope to a boat that's carrying a very large naked baby. Yeah, it's like a baby, but it's a baby as big as the boat. Like throwing the baby out with the bathwater be weird because the baby's as big as the boat with the bathwater. And then what's that thing under the cat lady? Is that like a beaver or a? Is that even <laughs> no, an animal? No, I think what that is is a clay jar with the journey logo on it because i've spent a lot of time looking at this because i was just so enamored by it uh, oh, i'm doing i'm doing it too so there's like there's two people up top they're like floating on a cloud that are pouring water and there's like an earth on the horizon but it's like sitting on the horizon it's not actually like a. I feel like somewhere there's a explainer article that would walk us through this but i <laughs> I do not know. It is awesome. That's all I'm going to say. And this album was actually a big success. It entered the Billboard charts at number three. Uh, it goes platinum before the year's wow. end. But uh, its its triumph is kind of short-lived. Um, before the Trial by Fire tour could begin, Steve Perry gets a hip injury while he's in Hawaii. And he's not able to perform. He gets diagnosed with a ge- degenerative bone condition. And they tell him he has to get a hip replacement. He's not that old at this point. And he's a little nervous about the surgery. So he asks to postpone the tour. So the remaining members wait until 1998. So this record comes out in 96. So they wait nearly 17 months after the wow. injury. But they're like, guy, the the door is closing. Like, we're not going to be able to, to do anything uh, and promote this record. It's been 17 months since it came out, right? Um, you know, Matchbox 20 is about to happen. So, actually, <laughs> Matchbox 20 has already happened at that point. Shit, I don't know what I have over here. But, like, like, Steve Perry has no game on the Rob Thomas game. <laughs> so, Jonathan Kane, Neil Sean, and Steve Perry have a meeting. And Sean and Kane basically give him an ultimatum. And they say, do the surgery so we can tour, or we're kicking you out of the band. Wow. And Perry doesn't want to do the surgery. 
Yeah. And he's pissed off because his buddies gave him this ultimatum. And so he walks. And meanwhile, and I had forgotten about this, even though I know we used to talk about it all the time. In the most this sounds fake move of all time, Journey quickly hires a replacement singer. And I kid you not, his name is Steve Aguirre. So they, they got rid of Steve Perry and they hired Steve Aguirre. <laughs> wow. Okay. So for the next 15 years, Steve Perry sort of just fades into obscurity. There's like random times and places that he pops up. Uh, he Like there's a greatest hit solo record and he does a movie soundtrack. He's on VH1's Behind the Music in which he says very briefly, quote, I never really felt like I was part of the band. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah. You remember that? I, oh man, because behind the music was such a thing, right? And, right, right, and 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 there was a there at the time there was a mystery, and, and you knew that he had left the band, but you didn't really know why. Didn't really know why. And it made lots of it made lots of sense that he didn't fit in yeah. the band. Yeah, I mean, interesting fact about him that I didn't know is that he is the son of two Portuguese immigrants. Yeah, yeah. So, it came up it, his his um where he's from came up um after Eddie Van Halen died and I got to he- hear these stories from Alex his brother or even from Wolfgang his son and you got to find out like how people treated Eddie and Alex Van Halen like shit because they were Dutch mm, um, yeah we talked about this I had forgotten about that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and then. And then I I learned about where Steve Perry was from, and I'm pretty sure I saw Steve Jones, the Sex Pistols guy, has a uh, a radio show in L.A. And I watched a, a, an interview with Steve Perry, and I remember him talking about where his family was from. Yeah. Too. And t- so does that impact anything, or is that just a? T- well, learn? I mean, his his mother dying definitely impacted him leaving the band. The, yeah. the first time. So I mean, I, there's definitely a family relationship. I don't know. I didn't read a lot in the research on that being a thing. And you know, I don't think most people would know. Even big fans of Journey would be able to tell you his ethnicity, um, because I had always sort of wondered it and never known. So I don't think it played an outsized role in any of this, but I'm sure it, it, you know, if he's always feels like an outsider, that's probably a deeply rooted part of it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So he spends it, all this time, sh- like just showing up in weird, obscure stuff. Like he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't really do much, but when he does show up, it's like with Tommy Tokioka, who is like a Hawaiian artist <laughs> there. He does the least obscure thing he does is he works on a project with the lead vocalist of, Ambrosia? I mean, shouts to Ambrosia. I, I, we have not, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do a full episode on Ambrosia. So I just, again, have to take the opportunity. Shouts to Ambrosia, biggest part of me. Yeah. Um, Shout up. But he's not booking casinos. He's not forming an alternate version of Journey. He's not trying to maintain pop cultural reference. And, and this is like what we've come to expect. You know, I joke all the time about how, like, no band breaks up anymore, right? Like, every band comes back after two or three or four years because then they're like, oh, we can play X size club and still make a little bit of money and not have to get day jobs or whatever. Like, nobody just disappears like Steve Perry did. And he really just took off. And meanwhile, back at the Journey Camp, Steve Aguirre's voice can't take the strain. And so by 07, Neil Sean is like on YouTube trying to find themselves a singer. Um, yeah, and guess and guess which country they found that singer from. Well, do you think? Let me just ask this to to reference another show of recent. 
um, in our catalog. Do you think Arnell got started doing karaoke? He's from the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. I bet he did. But I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, like Lady Gaga did, you know, before she was Lady Gaga, she did coffee shops and stuff. Do you think Lady Gaga went and did karaoke? Probably. I mean, why not? Right? I mean, it's like a surprise. It's like, you know, it's like John Bon Jovi showing up on stage to sing, you know, you give love a bad name and it's he's dressed up with a mullet or something. You know? Like, I, I, I wonder. Um, but yeah, Arnell was born in Manila. I know that. He's the Philippines. And so I never put that together that him and Steve are from basically the same country until, yes, uh, I guess it's about like two minutes ago. I got that. Okay. Check. So it's also important to know something here that we have alluded to already. And that is very important sort of, again, to emphasize why this is of real note. The Steve Perry continued to stay off the grid. And that's because journey hits this weird stroke of luck. And in 2007, they, have this massive resurgence. And I mean, I would think any band from the seventies and eighties would clamor and kill for the opportunity to achieve this sort of, you know, readmittance into the pop cultural lexicon. But there's like this accidental thing that pushes them back to top level stardom. And it mostly centers around one song. And we've already alluded to it. The 1981 hit that you can hear when you plug in their video game. Don't stop believing. Uh, it, it starts building its way back into heavy use in sports and some TV shows in the early 2000s. Like Laguna Beach had an episode that I think the finale of Laguna Beach featured the song. Uh, family Guy. <laughs> there was a Family Guy bit about it. But in May of 2007, that is when this tune and subsequently this band hit a new level. Now, in a recent episode of the Talking Sopranos podcast, David Chase, the creator, was asked about why he used Don't Stop Believing," And he said he'd actually had a short list of three songs. Oh, wow. And this he, is great. He said on the podcast that he can't remember what the third one was, but the second one was Al Green's Love and Happiness. Yeah, so he was trying to pick something that was upbeat or happy or... Right? So while traveling in a van with members of his production crew he asked them what they thought about the different songs. So he's like, what about this one? What about this one? And when he said, don't stop believing, everyone in the van was like, dude, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Boo, don't do oh, that. they hated it. Oh, yeah. really? Uh-huh. And so the song almost didn't get used. I-, I think in that moment, David Chase was like, if you're going to have that sort of outsized reaction to it, maybe it's the perfect song. But yeah. the song almost didn't get used because Sean, Kane, and Perry all have songwriting credits. And so for them to use it, all three guys have to sign off on it. And so they, Perry didn't want to sign off on it until he knew how the show was going to end. And so they go to David Chase and say, will you please tell Steve Perry what's going to happen? Because what he didn't want to happen is he didn't want him to get mowed down and killed with that song playing in the background. And so they like swarmed to secrecy. They told him he signed off on it, 
But it was interesting because I even read something, I can't remember if it was Jonathan Kane or Neil Shot. I think it was Jonathan Kane, said that like he didn't tell anybody that they were going to use that song. Like they were sort of all told not to talk about it. Wow. And so he's sitting at home watching it in real time that night with his wife. And his wife is like, oh my God, your song is on here. <laughs> he's like, yeah, not awesome. Uh, so we're, we're getting paid, honey. I, uh, side note, I had totally forgotten uh, until revisiting this uh, whole phenomenon that people call their cable providers when that show aired because they thought their HBO had gone out. Yeah, they thought, yeah, because it went dark. Yeah. It, it just goes like, totally dark. Yeah, yeah. It shows uh, that some people are were really stupid then, too. <laughs> it's a, okay, so signing off on this use was possibly the best career decision those dudes ever made. It yes. skyrocketed them back into pop cultural relevance in a way that I have never seen before or since. Can you think of another time out of an original context later in a career that a song has been used and revitalized a career like this? Can you think of any anything like this? The the only the only thing is Bohemian Rhapsody with oh Wayne, yeah yeah with, yeah, yeah. With, with Wayne's World that's a good because point. It, be, it became a number one hit again, but with Wayne's World that didn't revitalize their career. Well, it like didn't, it, yeah, they didn't start doing stadiums and stuff because Freddie was dead. Yeah, so it just it just did that again. So so and Bohemian Rhapsody has been to the charts again since then. Right, so, right, right, right. But but it it didn't it didn't so the answer to your question is no, I think this is only this might just be a journey thing. Okay, so if you can think of something we're missing, send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com because I'm very, very curious if there's I typically there's something we're missing, some blind spot, and I'd like to know that. The Queen is a really good point, but you're right. It didn't quite do the same thing. But since no. everybody was talking about the closing scene of The Sopranos, Journey became part of that conversation, and suddenly they were headlining arenas throughout every major and mid-sized market in the country again. It's crazy. And even through this, Perry not reuniting with the band. Sean and Kane yeah. take their new guy from YouTube, and they hit the road and reap all the benefits. Yeah. Um, and played uh, Lollapalooza, the same Lollapalooza that Limp Biscuit played this summer. I know, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. So they've been playing, um, they play big crowds and have not stopped playing big crowds. I assume they take those state fair, maybe they still take state fair things, but they, they, get, they get big shows. They don't play, you know, crappy things. They don't have to. They can sell tickets. Remember, the show's brought to you today by Mizen. Mizen Knives. Chefs agree you got to have a good chef's knife. It's the workhorse in the kitchen for you, and it should feel good in your hands. It should stay sharp, and it should hold up over time to the rigors of your kitchen. They have gone to great lengths to make sure that they have the perfect knife for you, and you can get it at the perfect price because they partner with the factories, and they sell directly online. So there you go. Mizen. Incredible cookware, wholesale pricing. Go to the link in our show notes and get one today. So I'm going to skip ahead to the end because the end is not the interesting part about this story. Perry released a 10-track studio album called Traces on October 5th, 2018. It was his first output of his own since 1994's For the Love of Strange Medicine that I mentioned earlier. Since then, he's done some Christmas music. He's done a version of that record he made. He reworked it acoustically, and that came out last year. And so, in short, yeah. he, he's he's back, and his voice sounds a little banged up. It's older, you can tell, but he's still he's still got it. But I said the end is not the interesting part of the story, and it's not. How did he get back? 
after all of the personal frustrations and the feelings and the medical issues, what inspired him to pick the microphone back up? That is the real meat of this story. And to get there, we have to leave Journey, and we have to leave Steve Perry, and we have to talk about another musician. A musician who I, I think, I mean, I know most, most of you folks who hang out with us on a regular basis are pretty big music fans, but I'm going to venture a guess that there's going to be some people who have never heard of this guy. Do you know the name Mark Oliver Everett? Yeah. Is, is he a musician? Yeah, it's okay if it doesn't ring a bell because it's never really been the name he chose to go by. In 1991, Mark Oliver Everett signed a contract with Polydor, and he ends up releasing an album later that year under the name E. Just E. The letter yeah. E. Yes. The, I got al- it. the album is called A Man Called E, and he has minor success. He has a song called Hello, Cruel World. In 93, he does another record. It's called Broken Toy Shop. He ends up meeting a guy named Tommy Walter, and they start a band. And they decide that as a marketing ploy, they need to name the band something that will put them next to E's solo records in the alphabetical listings at record stores. Remember those things? Yes. So they think real hard, and they come up with... Eels. Eels. Unfortunately, this doesn't work that well because Eagles and Earth, Wind, and Fire still sit between E and E, but just for the record. Um, oh, my gosh. So Eels signs a record deal with DreamWorks Records. But I want to side note real quickly. Do you remember who tries to sign them during this period and doesn't get them? Madonna? Uh, no. Uh, Maverick? No. The, the man behind the rock and roll bedtime story, Sacred Text, Life on Planet Rock, Lawn Friend. Oh, really? Do you remember that part in the book? So there's this whole section of the book because remember he goes into A&R in the 90s and he, oh, he, yes. he sinks all of his credibility on this band, The Bogmen, and then yeah. and, and they tank. And so he has no credibility. And so he's working for Arista, I think. And he takes eels to Clive Davis and Clive Davis won't take a chance on him because Lon Friend doesn't have the credibility. And yeah. so they end up going to DreamWorks and they're the first artist on DreamWorks. Second artist on DreamWorks, Elliot Smith. Yeah. So in 1996, they released their debut album, Beautiful Freak. And it's this kind of weird melancholy pop record with tormented lyrics. But there's a song on it called Novocaine for the Soul that you might have heard. Yes. And they achieve kind of modest national and international success. And they start to tour. And Play then, them on college radio, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. College radio is a good point of reference. They were they were a college radio band for sure. They tour all over in '96 and '97, and then Tommy Walter quits. So it's really we're back to it just mostly being Mark Oliver, Mark Oliver Everett, and he's kind of off to the races. So he starts a support band, and uh, they start touring. And let me just tell you the names of these guys. So he's E. His support band over the years have included members like Butch, Knuckles, Cool G Murder, and Peeboo. And uh, he, he kind of just builds this slightly under-the-radar career. And what starts to happen is Everett becomes a musician's musician. We talk about these guys, right? Like, he's a guy with a ton of famous friends. Peter Buck, John Sebastian, Tom Waits. He gets to tour with Pulp. He gets to tour with Fiona Apple. But he himself, never really a household name. Now, people love him, though. Like, the musicians love yeah. him. Well, yeah. yeah. And people in the know know who he is. And he reliably puts out music. I mean, he's still putting out music. But he, he reliably puts out music for the next 15 years. So, who is one of these in-the-know people who become interested in Everett and the Eels? 
Stupery. You guessed it. He starts. Oh, Sherry. Uh, Steve Perry starts showing up in the audience at Eel shows in 2003. He gets a hot tip from his friend, uh, Patty Jenkins. So, Patty Jenkins, do you remember that movie Monster with Charlize Theron? Yes. 2003? Charlize. Yeah. So, Patty Jenkins made that movie. She's now known for making Wonder Woman, and oh. she's going to do a Star Wars movie. She's a big freaking deal now. But in 2003, she was making this weird little flick with Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci, and she wanted to use Don't Stop Believing in it. So, she's able to get in touch with Steve Perry, and they, they actually sort of become friends. And she's telling him, she tells him at some point in the early 2000s that you you need to hear this band eels gives him an eels record. He gets obsessed with them and he starts going to their shows in 2003. And she also knows Mark. And so it takes five years, but eventually she gets the two of them to meet. And it's really funny because in press, uh, Mark Oliver Everett has been asked, what do you think of Steve? You know what? Like, what did you think of Journey? And he was like, "Yeah, I, I, I mean, he he's nice, but he basically is like, I used to think Journey was terrible. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, he was like an indie rock guy, right? So yeah. big arena rock from the '70s was not his thing. Um, so they meet Patty Jenkins, this Hollywood producer, uh, introduces these two guys, and they become pretty quick friends. And he has this croquet game at his house on Sunday nights. <laughs> No, no, you really? A hundred percent. This is true. A hundred percent. This is true. Multiple sources confirm this. A croquet uh-huh. game. It's the Eels Sunday. croquet game, and it's like a secret cast of people. Like I don't. I, I only know that Steve Perry attends. I don't know who else is there. So Steve Perry starts going to play croquet, and then something kind of strange starts to happen. Steve finds out where the band rehearses, and without telling anyone or asking, he just starts showing up. Oh, and. They kind of tease him after this starts happening a lot. They're like, cool, are you going to come on stage with us? And, uh, you know, no, 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 no. And one day, E's guitar player is able to goad Steve into singing Lights during rehearsal, just when it's just the band. Wow. And they've gone on the record to say, like, it was unbelievable. Like, when it happened, everyone was like, oh, my God, what's happening? Now, meanwhile, Patty Jenkins is still a really important part of the story because... Patty Jenkins and Steve Perry stay friends. And in 2011, she's shooting a lifetime anthology film about breast cancer. And for this movie, they get to play the extras. They bring in real life cancer patients. And so he's on the set and he sees this woman on the set and he says to Patty, like, Hey, who is that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I remember when he met her. So weird. Okay. Yeah. So she's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's this woman, but she, you know, I got to tell you, she just found out she's not in remission anymore and she's definitely going to die really soon. And Steve is like, can you connect us anyway? And Patty has said on the record that this is not Steve. Like Steve was, you know, at this point they've been friends for like 10 years. And she said, Steve is just not like that. Um, But long story short, they, they end up getting together and spend a year and a half together before she dies. The cancer goes into her brain. And near her deathbed, like when she knows she's near the end, she makes Steve promise to her not to go back into hiding and run away from music again. Yeah. She, it's it's her, it's, um, I was going to say it's her fault he's back. But yeah. So Steve Perry decides that to honor that promise, he will return to the stage. And his first public performance in decades 
will happen. And he made this decision known to the band, according to E, not via phone or email, but one day he showed up to tour rehearsals carrying his own microphone. (laughs) Which is like my favorite detail of this story. The official moment happens in 2014 at an Eels show at Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. The band plays the set. They come out. They play an encore. They go backstage. They come out to play a second encore. And this is what happens. The interesting thing about this guy is he hasn't sung his songs for some 20, 25 years. He walked away from it because it didn't feel right. You have to respect that. The last time he played around these parts, it was at the XL Center and the Target Center. That's right. And for some reason, only known to him, he feels like tonight in St. Paul, Minnesota, it feels right. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Perry. makes his return to the stage after 20 years singing a Mark Oliver Everett song called It's a Motherfucker. It's a Motherfucker being here without you. Absolutely chill-inducing, beautiful performance. And my favorite part of that video, you gotta go, you can watch the whole performance. It's 11 minutes. He does a couple Journey songs after they do this one. And the best part is that everyone thinks that it's a joke until they actually see Steve Perry. So when I played that, you could hear two rounds of applause. Yeah. And he says, Steve Perry. And Steve Perry's not on stage yet. And everyone gives like a, oh, hilarious. This is going to be a joke. And then Steve Perry walks out on stage and you can audibly hear the audience be like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> And it is amazing. Like, can you imagine being in the audience and like with no warning, suddenly this weird anomaly that has been part of rock music for a good chunk of your life is just over. It's just absolutely a beautiful story and an amazing sort of just testament to the power of friendship and music and and what it can do to people and, and, and how it can heal things and bring people back together. Yeah, otherwise we wouldn't have Steve Perry back around, which I'm glad he's back. I'm glad he's back, too. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, you know you can do that by hitting us up at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Let us know uh, what you think of the show, too, when you review on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. That helps more people find the show. And um, what do we need people to do before uh, we get back together next time? 
Keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.